Tonight, I wanted to uh, begin a series of on the ten paramis, uh, the requisites for enlightenment. It may not follow week to week, but um, we'll start <laughs> tonight, starting with dana. Before I actually go into speaking about the paramis and dana, I wanted to dedicate this talk. Um, it's not something I often do. In fact, maybe only once before. But as I was preparing it, there was a friend of mine that kept coming to mind over and over and over again. And she is somebody who just embodies these paramis. Uh, She has been such a role model to me in dana, generosity. Uh, She's been just this incredible inspiration in my life. And, you know, through just coming in contact with this open-heartedness, this capacity to give, where she so deeply cares for the welfare and benefit of others, and she so deeply cares about the longevity of these teachings and this practice where her own life has been um, profoundly touched by the teachings from the Buddha, from doing the practice herself and had, you know, just has the wisdom and generosity of heart to see that there's something there that needs to be taken care of so that future generations can practice, can hear these teachings. And just as a result of her actions, many, many people have benefited, will benefit, that it's just set in motion something that is truly profound. And often when I think of her, I am reminded of someone who lived in the time of the Buddha. His name was Anathapindaka. And he was said to be, the Buddha called him the chief patron, that his generosity at the time of the Buddha, uh, you know, originally all of the monks were just out practicing in the woods, in overhangs of rocks, in caves, in cemeteries, out just right out in the open. And then, you know, he asked the Buddha if it would be okay to build more permanent dwellings for the monks. And the Buddha agreed. He accepted. And this became the first training monastery. And, uh, you know, a monastery that got referred to over and over again in the teachings because it was often a place where the Buddha gave teachings. And so, you know, just the generosity that Anathapindaka had has always inspired me. It said throughout his whole life he continued to give. Um, And for me, it's just been also so inspiring to know that I also live in a time when people have this great generosity of heart. These beings are in the world here and now. So I'll first speak a little bit about the paramis, these requisites for enlightenment. Um, These are very wholesome states in the mind that the Buddha was said to have brought brought to, my English tonight is off, sorry, (laughs) brought to full fruition each of these qualities, and the paramis being generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And so these were the requisites for enlightenment, that in order to be a Buddha, these qualities had to fully ripen. And they're the same qualities that for any of us need to ripen 
And, you know, the Buddha has a a different place in the world than just a, a fully awakened being in that the Buddha has the capacities to really help others to realize their potential. And where some people just may be, you know, free from confusion, free from delusion, and may not have quite those capacities, these capacities really helped the Buddha. But there are also qualities that, in order to realize any level of awakening, need to be uh, brought forth. And they actually come forth quite naturally in our practice, as we practice, uh, you know, in moments when greed, aversion, and delusion are not present. We will find these qualities are there. They're actually qualities, too, that um, really get strengthened when we come on retreat. And we often just completely overlook this. And one of the things that I found very helpful in my own practice is when the chips were down in the midst of a retreat, when the going was hard, one way to really gladden the mind, one way to kind of get back on track was to look and to see what paramis were being strengthened. And, you know, it's like we, just in being here, there's a level of renunciation, meeting our experience moment to moment. We're strengthening truthfulness, honesty. In being here, resolve is present. You know, if we didn't have some degree of resolve, determination, you know, we would have left our first retreat. We just wouldn't have hung in. You know, when, when the hindrances can't start to arise, it would be like, I'm out of here. I don't need this. You know, but, but there was something in us that was motivated to keep going, to keep looking. And, you know, this is a, certainly a quality in my own experience that has really come forth in difficult times on retreat. I think I may have touched upon last week sitting with Sayada Upandita. My first retreat with him was deeply challenging. I mean, <laughs> I called it open brain surgery. And, and, you know, but one of the things that I saw was there was this being who would be up early in the morning, staying up late at night, because because of this resolve, this determination. You know, it, you know, I don't think it was so much a forceful pushing, but it, it was like just wanting to look, to see, you know, to understand, and utilizing you know, my life to do that. And one other parami that it can be very evident on retreat is that of um, patience. You know, that time and time again, we need patience. Uh, 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 you know, there's, it's often said in Buddhist teachings that the road to Nibbana is paved with patience. And we don't learn patience when things are going the way we want them to. You know, we can't learn it unless there's challenges. And so, you know, that... that Somewhere for me, these paramis have been really helpful to see, to be able to recognize, and to at times actually pay attention to habits that you know both help them to to grow and to flourish, to strengthen um, might be the right word. Um, and seeing all the habits of confusion that get in the way where they diminish, you know and we're really working with, you know, when the Buddha talked about right effort, really that nurturance of wholesome qualities in the mind and really discovering what helps them to establish. Sometimes people hear this list and actually get disheartened. You know, it's like hearing a checklist of all the qualities you don't think you have. But the good thing about these wholesome qualities is they're not personal. That they are what... 
They become expressions of the awakened mind. You know, I think if we were to have met the Buddha, or and, and in our lives we may have met great beings, these are qualities that really come forth in how they live, how they act, what they do. It, is, it radiates these qualities. And if we look back and listen, you know, some of the teachings of the Buddha and stories told about him, and I've always been struck by the great patience. You know, he, <laughs> some of the questions he got asked, and, you know, <laughs> he would be so patient with people. And the com- level of compassion he had and his capacity, I mean, you know, he worked with really deeply troubled beings, you know, that his heart was so vast and deep that he could work with a mass murderer and completely turn that person's life around. No, it's just, uh, you know, and, you know, his loving kindness being so strong that it was said to, you know, just stop charging wild animals in their track. Or, you know, somebody going to shoot an arrow at him. But his presence, just so strong. You know, not even through his words, just his presence. And for me, these qualities, it, it keeps up from being a disembodied wisdom. Now that it's not, you know, the pr- practice of awakening, of finding freedom. There is an expression to With the strengthening of these qualities, it's kind of like a, a way of resetting our default mechanism. Where often there's incidents, you know, things happen in our life, and the immediate reaction can be colored by greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, just habits that we fall into. Well, there can be wholesome response. And these paramis, you know, are a reflection of what these wholesome responses can be. So through our practice and through the strengthening of these qualities, we help to make them more accessible, more present in our lives. And that's, you know, I've just seen, like tonight I'm speaking about dana or generosity. And when we start paying attention to it in our lives, it takes us out of any habits we may have around it and brings it into consciousness so that all these habits are in consciousness and that we really begin to explore the quality itself. And we begin to recognize, no, and can nurture or allow the conditions that will help it to strengthen. These paramis are um, given in a specific order because it's said that each one helps the next one to strengthen and supports it. In the list of the paramis, I don't know if you noticed, but compassion is not specifically named. Um, But it is central to all of these paramis because uh, these paramis are actually what distinguishes them from as being paramis rather than just qualities in the mind is that they are all strengthened or have the characteristic of benefiting others. So... The paramis really, really, really help us to, again, erode our self-cherishing tendencies. You know, just this way we have of living as the center of the universe. And, you know, the, the, the self that in our Vipassana insight meditation we see arising over and over again, you know, in, in, from the grossest form to the subtlest form the strengthening of these qualities can be done 
for the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere. And so, you know, it just is another way of working with this deeply habituated relationship to life. That, you know, as we discover where there is self, there is suffering. I actually heard um, recently a really beautiful story. Uh, Let's see if I can find the guy's name. Hmm. So you get. Okay, his name's David Roberts. I just wanted to get that right. He's an Australian author, and he lived in the slums in Bombay. And I don't know if you've ever seen the slums there, but when I was passing through and looked out of the window of the train I was traveling on. It was like the mind didn't know how to comprehend what it was seeing. No, it was just, there was nowhere to put it. The, the, these little shanties that people were living in, you know, made from whatever they could salvage, you know, plastic bits of material, just whatever could be put together and all crammed into a very tiny space. Well, David Roberts lived in these slums for a period of time. And um, it was to me very striking what he had to say from living there. Because, you know, he said that people uh, often try to describe it, but they seem to miss an essential piece that he found in living in the midst of these slums. And he said there was 25,000 people crammed into a space that was about 800 by 800 meters. And, you know, um, what he noticed, he said, like, the conditions were just so extreme. What became evident was how much everybody helped each other. Everybody helped their neighbor, the amount of love that was present in these slums. He said, you'd see a little child, you know, walking down the alleyway, and they'd have snot dripping from their nose, an indication that they weren't well. And it wouldn't be like, well, it's not my child, I don't have to deal with it. You would just rally to taking care. He said, like, cholera swept through. Everybody came to help. Um, There was a fire. And actually, this fire happened on the first night that he had moved into the slums. And, you know, he was, you know, unpacking all his belongings. And um, then there was this fire that, you know, could just wipe this place out in no time. And so he just, his immediate impulse was to flee. He started packing his bag. And then, uh, I think... as he was going out the gate, something happened and he looked up and he noticed that there's these women who, and small children looking at this foreigner who had come in, who was this, you know, big strong foreigner who was running away from the fire and then all of these very small skinny Indian men who were running towards the fire. You know, he just stopped in that moment and realized and then went off to help with the fire. But that, you know, that, that this capacity for generosity, this open-heartedness, has nothing at all to do with um, how much we have, but just that openness of heart, that deep caring. So, beginning with dana, generosity. Just yesterday, I was at a a function at the study center, and at some point during the when people were speaking, the word dana was used, and um, you know it didn't strike me as anything unusual. And and then it was at the very end, uh, Ajahn Suchito 
one of the monks um, from the Amravati Sangha uh, spoke, and he just pointed out how the word dana had been used without needing to be defined, and how happy he was to hear that word coming into the culture. And, you know, I think it's a word that probably, because we're not beginners here, you know, most of us are familiar with. And that um, it is it is quite lovely that this word is entering into this culture. So dana, it has a very special place in Buddhist teachings. It was often the first teaching that the Buddha would give when lay practitioners would come and ask him for teachings. It's the first topic on the graduated exposition of the Dhamma. You know, the Buddha didn't begin as when someone would come up and say, hey, would you please give me some teachings? He didn't start talking about anatta. Um, he began with this uh, dana. And, you know, if we lived in a, a Buddhist country as very small children, one of our first teachings would have been around dana that what happens in Asia, and I, you know, I've certainly seen it myself and been so touched by it, is that you will see parents with very small children getting their children to offer rife, rice to the monastics on their alms round. And so you know, they're, as a child, learning about offering. And often... You know, there is just such a delight and joy in that offering, and you can see it on their face. And so, you know, just imagining if we all, as children, that was one of our first lessons. And then, also in that country, their next lesson would be around ethical conduct, sila. And, you know, that that really gives a foundation for the training of the mind to awaken. And so that there's a really graduated path there. And for many of us, it, it didn't quite begin that way. You know, when we came in contact with the teachings, I certainly know it was true for me, it was like liberation or bust and had nothing to do with generosity. But, you know, that was just the deluded mind. <laughs> and in uh, really delving into the practice and waking up to my actions, uh, it's been just such a joy to see how much this practice is related to this quality of generosity. So, from the Buddha, we can get a a sense that it makes a strong basis for the training of the mind. And so I'd just like to speak about some of the qualities that are there um, that help it to be this basis. You know, it's the first of the ten paramis. Here again, it's at the beginning, the basis. So, you know, one aspect, I think, is that it does really help to erode self-cherishing tendencies uh, and takes us into a place of care and concern for the welfare of others. And we just you know learn basics we learn how to share with joy and you know that we learn about interconnectedness interrelatedness through this care and concern that dana helps us to develop all of the brahma viharas uh, i'll come back a little bit more to that that dana is very wholesome you know, that it's a meritorious deed. It, it, there's fruits that will ripen from an act of generosity that support awakening. Through dana, we have the capacity to touch the lives of others. It becomes a way of expressing gratitude. And there's also the wisdom side of dana, where... In a moment 
of generosity. There's no desire or grasping. There's also no anger, aversion. And it's a very tangible form of letting go, relinquishing. So looking closer at this. So Dana, supporting the Brahma Viharas. Dana is actually an active form of metta, loving kindness. It's a way in which we give compassion, aid to those whom we give to. It's a place where we can rejoice in others' happiness as we offer. And dana and equanimity are tied together through the wisdom of being able to give and expecting nothing in return and being able to open the field of to whom we might offer to be all-inclusive. On the wisdom side of dana, it is working with the capacity to let go. Now, this is something that we may have heard over and over again in meditation instructions, let go, let go, let go. And, you know, sometimes it feels too subtle, we don't have a sense of it, and we don't have a sense what happens, what it feels like when the mind is not clinging. And by offering gifts, offering something material, this is very tangible, because there's something in your hand one moment, and... When it's offered, it's not there. And when we pay attention to that, when the heart's really in, with that experience, we can experience the great joy, the lightness, the, what this, a sense of relinquishment, of letting go, of you know, when we're not clinging, holding on. And you know this quality of letting go is really critical to freedom. In the moment of generosity, where there's no desire, you know, it, it counters desire. You know, and so often it's like the wanting to get, wanting more, wanting to hang on to. Now, this can come from our, our cultural conditioning um, that it can be quite strong. We, our social status, and sometimes in this culture, you know, there can be attributes given to it by how much we have accumulated. And so you know, it really can go against that. But in moments when uh, dana is present and offering is being made, that there is no desire. The mind is free of this, as it is of anger and aversion. That, you know, there's a, a great gladdening in the mind and heart. We find that this really helps to make the mind le- uh, more pliable and less fixated, which in itself supports the dispelling of delusion. In moments of generosity, it's you know, a moment of wisdom where we're making a conscious choice. If we're conscious in the act of giving, we can have habits where we're not. We just kind of habitually do it. But where there's a real consciousness, it's a moment where we're choosing to do something wholesome. And the Buddha, you know, often talked about the merits of giving. And this is something, you know, it, it said that it will really help you in future lives to come, which, you know, may not be what we all relate to. But actually, 
as I was um, reflecting on my friend who was just given so generously, I just, what started happening was I was rejoicing in the merit that, you know, not that she did it to create the merit, but that the merit would come from the fruits of her generosity and that that would be there to support. Um, And this famous teaching from the Buddha, if beings knew as I know the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of miserliness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared, if there were someone to receive their gift. But because beings do not know as I know, the results of giving and sharing. They eat without having given. The stain of miserliness overcomes their mind. In my own life, I have certainly had to work with the stain of miserliness. That I felt like I was born with a tightly clenched fist. And we often see it in children, you know, candy, my candy, my toy, you know, that um, may not have been for some of us our first response to give. And this is where, you know, just the great blessing of these teachings, having had so many role models in this lineage who, who just portray this, has really helped me to work with this tightly closed fist, to bring this into the realm of practice, inquiry. And, you know, that means it's looking at fear that can be underlying it. You know, the the sense that we need to hold on to, to be taken care of. I actually have, you know, one friend who, again, just wonderful, um, was going, she was going through a time in her life where she didn't have an abundance of things. And unlike how my mind may have reacted, her thought then was to look and see what she did have that she could give away. You know, that she, it's just such, so, so different to that mind of miserliness, that mind that is ready, free to share. So we really explore, bring into the realm of practice. And, you know, in doing so, you know, um, we have to look at the whole process. What's happening? And just even to remember that there's the possibility of giving. You know, that in our lives we can go through days, possibly, without I better speak for myself. I can go through days without having had the thought of what can be shared. You know, and here's the Buddha talking about if it was your last bite of food and there was somebody to share it with. The, this practice being so important that you don't take that last mouthful by yourself. There's said to be three kinds of giving. The first is tentative giving. It's giving where it feels safe, or maybe there's some form of hesitation, but then it's overcome and the act of giving is done. You know, one example might be where giving where it's safe. We've got a closet full of clothes, some of them we haven't worn for 10 years. And then, you know, after 10 years, we're okay to give them. Another example that's given is that it's a, of like a person who eat, sits down to eat a feast and they eat all of the best food and then they pass on the rest. You know, so once our needs are satisf- completely satisfied, then we'll offer. 
the second kind of giving is that of sisterly or brotherly giving. And it's where, you know, we can easily share with those whom are dear to us. And, you know, I had a, a lesson one time in this and just seen Seeing how that happens, you know, and it was around clothes, but it wasn't around the 10 years in the closet. Maybe it was one year, you know, where maybe, maybe I was still going to want to wear those clothes. And, uh, but I couldn't bring myself to give them away. And then a dear friend came to visit. And, you know, then it was so easy to give them to her, you know, to, to that, 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 world of people whom are close to us and that, that, that sense of caring is easy to connect with. And then there's what's called royal giving. It's where we can just give from a place of abundance. And that abundance, again, is not tied into how much we have, but it's an abundance of heart. And this is where, you know, my my husband, Edwin, has been another role model. He is just so generous in his time, his energy. He's generous with what, uh, whatever possessions, material goods he has. Um, and he's been quite an inspiration. And there was a time where um, we were going through a period where we didn't have a lot. And then it happened, we were on two different continents, and we unexpectedly received a sum of money. And then, shortly after, we got together on the same continent. And then we began talking, and we discovered that we had given away almost the exact amount of money that we'd been given. And so, you know, when we discovered that, I looked at him, and I said, you know, we're never going to be rich. And he looked at me, and with all his wisdom, he said, you know, we are rich. And this is the heart of the one who gives from abundance. Motivation plays a part in this. It's not that we just give... um, and this is, you know, again, looking, bringing it into the realm of consciousness, looking at what's underlying. Because sometimes we'll find in our giving, some of our motives may not be so wholesome. So I, there's a list that I just found quite fun to look at, quite reflective of certain things in my mind that comes out of the teachings. And so just to see if any of these resonate. And these are motives for giving. One gives with annoyance or as a way of offending the recipient or with the idea of insulting them. One gives motivated by fear. One gives in return for a favor done in the past. One also may give with the hope of getting a similar favor in the future. One gives because giving is considered to be good. One gives because of altruistic motives. One gives to get a good reputation. And one gives to adorn and beautify the mind. So in the act of giving, to really look and see what our motives are. And this we have to do in a non-judgmental way. You know, it's not... um, done to see how unwholesome we might be because my actual experience of giving is there can be such a flickering between wholesome and unwholesome you know and this you know in the tentative giving it's like the desire to give the wholesome desire and then fear kicks in and um uh, you know, it, it'll just flicker, and then wanting to hang on, and you know, it, it just flickers back and forth. And sometimes we might not be clear what the real motivation for giving is. But, you know, this is, you know, not to get uh, hard on ourselves or not to get brutal with it. But it's just let it be seen, let it be aired, let it be there and look. It's said that the highest form of generosity is generosity that is associated with wisdom before, during, and after. 
And this is where, you know, in the giving, there's the wisdom element is present. You know, and that can manifest in different ways. It can be the understanding of karma that these actions have uh, consequences, and this is a way of planting the wholesome seeds. Uh, can be done with an understanding of impermanence, that both the giver, or the giver, the receiver, and the gift themselves are all impermanent, and that there's nothing to hang on to there. Um, it can be given with, you know, just we, we do this understanding by, you know, calling forth these qualities in our lives. This is what helps to, you know, turn, slant the mind towards liberation, awakening. As we explore generosity, giving, receiving is also a piece of this. And, you know, we can also be looking at patterns around receiving. Last week I mentioned that I had been a nun in Burma and that it had been a very challenging time for me. One of the challenges I faced was around receiving that the people in Burma, even though they're very poor, have very difficult conditions, they are very generous. And, you know, in particular, they really like to support the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And one of the things I learned became very apparent is that their giving was not personal to me. It was really giving in support of the Buddha, his teachings, the practice, the continuation, the lineage that carries it forth. And, um, but the, the, I was in this situation where, you know, I would get up and breakfast was at 7 o'clock in the morning, lunch was at 11 o'clock. During these two meals themselves, there was so much generosity. There, I would be sitting, as I said, at this table by myself, and there would be, you know, the, a meal in front of me. And I would be eating, and there was this abundance of food. And then, throughout the meal, it would happen that there's nuns that they cooked in their own kutis. Um, there was the uh, abbot who was nearby, and he would have you know food at his table, and everybody would also be sending food to my table. And the abbess there, and I got into this relationship, I felt like this rebellious child. She was trying to get me to eat more, eat more. And, you know, I was getting fuller and fuller. <laughs> Nowhere to, to, I couldn't stuff any more in. Um, and then it would also happen that out of their, you know, just abundance of heart, they kept giving me snacks to eat in my room. Now, the only time I could eat because you know I was no, not eating after the midday meal was between you know seven thirty or eight o'clock when I got back to my room and eleven o'clock before the next meal. And, you know it was impossible, and so then all this food starts accumulating, and what does it do? It attracts bugs. So this is really turning into a problem in my world because again I didn't want to kill the bugs. I'm living as a nun. I want to uphold the precepts. And so, you know, there was this challenge. And, you know, I really didn't know what to do. And then one night I had a dream. And it was, you know, a no-brainer that I got the message. In the dream it said, give it away. So I began giving it away. This is when I really uh, touched into receiving you know, that, so it wasn't I wasn't the actual receiver in this. I was offering something as simple as a bag full of apples to the nun who had been living in the kuti next to me. And, you know, I just so appreciated her steadiness. We couldn't speak, you know, she spoke Burmese, I spoke English. And, you know, but, she, you know, she would see me sitting, walking, and I would just see her practicing in her kuti. And she had a lovely, gentle presence. Just very, 
very fine presence. And so, you know, she was my first thought of whom to offer to. And so I took this bag of apples over to her. When I offered her that, those apples, it was like just offering them into emptiness. It, it, you know, it was, I don't know if you've had that experience, but it's like the person being so open, so empty. And this was really, you know, where the giver, receiver, gift all become empty. That, and for me, it was such a teaching, you know, that that when we open to receiving, you know, someone offers us a gift. The power of that. And, you know, it caused me to reflect on in my own life my habits around receiving. And it's common, I think. You know, I've heard many people say, similar to what I've heard myself say, somebody offers me something and say, oh, thanks, but no thanks. I'm okay. I don't know if we think it's a form of weakness. Um, We're... That there's some kind of fear that it's you know showing that we're inadequate in some way, but just a tendency not to receive, and so in you know that experience with this nun, she had just totally received. So, having to look to at our habits around receiving. And you know, something that now when people offer me something, it's a being able to rejoice in, in their action helps me to receive. And these, this giving and receiving, it's like the ebb and the flow of the universe the in-breath and the out-breath. In one moment we have something to offer, and in the next moment we're receiving. It's just, it's the ebb and flow. One of the things that the Buddha also spoke about uh, in bringing generosity into the realm of consciousness is to reflect on our acts of generosity. And sometimes we think, oh, you know, what's that? Conceit? Oh, look at me. Look what I gave. Isn't that great? But that's not what it's pointing to. It's pointing to being able to recognize, acknowledge and feel the effects of wholesome states in the mind and moments of wisdom in our lives where we did have the wisdom to offer, to care, to relinquish. It's funny, often we don't have any problem sitting and reflecting, and this you know, could be on your retreat, of all of the unwholesome things we've done or you know, the, the unwholesome attributes in the mind. <laughs> and we'll sit and almost revel in that, and yet can kind of cringe when we think of reflecting on the wholesome. But a, something that's really help, been helpful to me. In the retreat setting, our generosity is different kinds of gifts than we might give outside of retreat. So I'm aware when I speak about it that I don't want to set off a whole flurry of chocolates appearing on people's cushions or um, you know, just leave, leaving little gifts for people everywhere because that can actually stir up the mind huge. I remember one three-month retreat. Every time I turned around, there was another chocolate. And I was doing a yogi job, and suddenly you know, I, I, I was mopping a floor, and I turned around to put the mop in the bucket, and somebody had left a gift. And, and, but it, you know, I really saw that it, in, in this setting that wasn't so helpful. And yet there are really clear 
priceless gifts that we are offering in being here. The gift of silence. You know, where we've, we're just entering into this space knowing that we're not going to chit-chat with each other. That out of that silence, which is very rare, I mean, how many other places in the world do you really find this kind of silence? And so, you know, out of that gift, it allows us to really be with our own process. You know, to not have people, you know, if you look sad one day, it's not like everyone's coming along trying to give you advice, trying to tell you what to do, or trying to take away your sadness. It allows you to touch what's there. And, you know, so it's a real gift in the silence that we give to each other in living by the precepts here. This is also giving ourselves the gift of safety that really allows this process to be held in a safe environment where we aren't living in fear of what someone might do to us. We give each other the gift of loving kindness, compassion. Now, where somebody's struggling, we hold them in our hearts, where there's just, you know, even though we sit in silence, a deep caring for our fellow yogis. We give ourselves and the world at large the gift of our practice the gift of deepening understanding of presence. The Dhamma being the highest gift of all. What we realize in our practice. A gift that helps us to live more skillfully, as living beings in this world, a gift that at times may be something that one day will be shared with others, what we have learned through this exploration. So dana, generosity, it opens the doors for the rest of the paramis. It helps to bring about an openness, a spaciousness in the mind and heart. It helps to bring forth a deep caring for others. It helps the mind to soften become more pliable, less fixated. It helps us to understand karma. On a simple level of that, you know, if we, if we do reflect on acts of generosity, that right there you can feel the effect of remembering. You know, generosity is said to be good in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. It's good in the beginning. There's great joy in the mind with the thought of giving. In the middle, in the act of giving, there's great joy in sharing. And in the end, in remembering that we have given, there's also great joy. Generosity, helping to uproot greed, hatred, and delusion. and strengthening, letting go, relinquishment. When I think of dana or generosity, I often think of it as being the glass plate 
in which these teachings come to us. You know, it can be, because it's you know, glass, it can almost be overlooked. And yet, without a sense of a plate of serving, these teachings wouldn't have made it to us here today. It comes from a long lineage. You know, thinking back to Sujata, a young laywoman whom came across an aesthetic, dilapidated, in great need of food to continue his inquiry. This was the Buddha-to-be. She offered him some rice gruel with honey, gave him the sustenance, that one act of generosity gave him the sustenance to sit under the Bodhi tree. Out of his great generosity, what he realized that night, he shared with others. Through others supporting the Sangha, supporting the Buddha, it kept alive these teachings, this practice from generation to generation. I'm sitting here flooded with memories of so much of my own learning around generosity happened in Burma, happened with, you know, these people that did not have much to give and gave. And the great power that's there So I just invite you in your lives to really take it on as a practice, to really explore the terrain. And I think one thing that really helps, you know, it's just like this sense of gratitude that I feel. The gratitude... Gratitude for the generosity, the willingness of all those who have given so freely in all the different ways that one can give. And one's, you know, the effort we put in here. There's something so precious. I mean, not precious as in uh, in a bad way. I mean, it's just there's something worth taking care of. Mm. I'm just remembering, a, a, you know, going back to Burma again for a moment, just uh, traveling in Sagain Hills with this monk, uh, Sayadaw, and as I mentioned last week, it's beautiful there in the way that there's all these nunneries, monasteries, pagodas. And as we were driving along, I just commented to the Sayadaw of the, you know, the beauty of this. And he, he just said, everything you see has been donated. 
And I remembered something the Buddha had said about to give where you have confidence. And, you know, looking around was just seeing the confidence that these people have in the triple gems. Okay, so that's dana, generosity. Let's sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the joy of sharing. So closing with the chanting of the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.